it's wonderful to be in this new room. I'm going to stand up just for a few minutes because I can't see if I sit down. Um, and I was thinking on the way over here about my day as a clinician. And I went through from 9 o'clock until my last session. And my first session was a couple who were frightened of love and need. So that's one issue. Um, then I, the next session was a woman who's in her 50s who, who in the last year had, came, to, came to look after her mother with whom she had a very troubled and ambivalent relationship. I've got, can't, I have to sit down. No, you have to put your hand up. I, I have to pretend I'm not a Jew. Um, <laughs> and who made peace with her mother and finally came to feel that she had, could love her. Then there was a man who needs to woo, compulsively, sexually woo, but only to see in the eyes of the person that he's wooed after a very long journey that yes, yes, she will surrender. And then he doesn't really need anything else. Okay, so that, these are the kinds of things that come to my consulting room. Um, a man at 64 who is learning for the first time, these are his words, what it might mean to dare to trust somebody so that you actually could love another as opposed to only being in relation to yourself and having this other person be um, tapped to the ground. I could go on. Please do. No. <laughs> I'm really, we're here to talk about Lisa's latest book, and I'm going to ask her a few questions. We'll have a bit of a dialogue, and then hopefully we'll have a, a back and forth with you. Okay? So, first of all, Lisa, the why. Okay? I mean, why, did, why this book? Why this approach to it? And so on. I'd really rather hear about your cases to get this I'll answer that very quickly and briefly. And it's actually like all writers' books. It's partly accident and it's partly overdetermined. Um, the book I wrote before this was called Mad, Bad and Sad. And it was a long history of the rise and rise of the um, uh, mind doctors, the mental health professions, neurology, psychiatry, psychoanalysis. and. Um, seen through the cases of women. And when my publisher asked me what I wanted to write next, I said, well, what is there? You know, <laughs> I think I'll just have to write about love. And, and there was an ulterior motive to this, or an ulterior reason, which is simply that um, in the registers of the causes of mental illness, something we on the whole don't talk about much anymore, um, in the early 19th century, in 1828, in Bedlam, that's been the great asylum. Can you hear me in the back? Okay. Rise and do funny gestures if you can. Not really. Sorry? Not really. Not really. Why don't you stand for a minute? Or, or just move the mic slightly nearer to you, maybe? I think you, that may be the problem. Is that better? Yes. Yeah? yeah? Okay. Um, so as, as the, one of the precipitating causes, or, the, or one of the main precipitating causes of, of, of madness in the 1820s, in the, at, the, at the sort of very, very birth of the mental health professions and uh, within the asylum. Uh, love was, you know, one of the, the causes 
that the doctors thought was most responsible for people being thrust into the bosom, shall we say, of the asylum. And so that was one of the other reasons I wrote this book. And, and linked to that was a sense that by the time we get to our own moment in the 21st century, um, that love, that passion, that passion being one of the expressions of like love or one of the um, experiences that people go through, um, is, is traditionally, in, and in all cultures, an experience which is seen as being very close to madness. In other words, it derails you. It makes you crazy. You're crazy when you're in love. You break the rules. You don't, talking now about passionate love, not all its other forms. Um, and it seemed to me that, that in our own time, um, at a time when the, um, if you like, the rise and rise of, of the mental health professions had become such that it had taken over and seemed to explain and contain so much of our experience, our extreme experience within diagnoses. The, think of the rise of the DSM from 116 pages to 1,000 pages in its latest edition, so that all extremes of behavior become encapsulated, become bracketed as something crazy. Um, something which can have a diagnosis attached to it. Love is still the area which hasn't been labeled as mad. So it's the one remaining area of freedom where you can be mad and be ordinary at the same time. So I wanted to explore this. and that, that, That's the why, Susie. That, that was one of the things that went into the making of this book. The, the, the final reason is just looking around me, and, and I'm not a therapist, and I don't have people coming into my study every day and tell me the problems, but I do have a lot of friends, and I have children, and I watch the vagaries. I'm, I'm also a novelist, I, I observe, and I watch the vagaries of experience, and it seemed to me that although I think there is a, a, a cross-cultural and indeed long historical basis to various aspects of love, there are also inflections which are particular to our time. And it seemed to me that something had become imbalanced in our understanding uh, in, in, and in the way that we lived love in the affluent um, 21st century, before austerity had become, I mean, reevaluate this by the end of, of, of the next 10 years, but, but it seemed to me that we would entered a time of excess and excessive expectation, um, and it was worth thinking about what we meant by love through the course of an entire life, not just in its, you know, that huge efflorescence, which of course can't come back, uh, which is the moment of grand passion in adolescence. Well, I, I think it's very important that what you've done in this book is a, is the life story of love, but I suppose what I'm thinking as you're talking now is what have you understood by the notion of love as outside of all other categories? Not love as attachment, not love only as erotic, not, but, but the thing that allows the madness. What have you, I mean, I know, you know, it would be very I think different from an analyst's point of view. That it well, I'll tell you from my own background as, as a historian and as somebody who knows a lot about literature and across cultures um, and as, as a rather aging lady. So um, I've, you know, I've seen things and experienced things and read a great many things. Um, and I think probably what that passionate uh, 
configuration of love, which as I say, is not time trapped. It informs a great many of one's later ways of loving and in fact has been formed in, in you know, very close to the cradle, <laughs> if not in it as well. So, so it continues through time in variations. But what I learned about it is that it's unpredictable and it's unruly. What I know about it is that it isn't containable. And so that quite a lot of what you might call the unconscious, I don't know whether you, you still use that word, Susie, um, is actually also something that expresses itself in our love choices, in the way we live it, or the way we can't live it, in the stories we tell ourselves about it, or the lacks that we feel related to it. So in that sense, you know, it's a big subject. I, mean, I want to come back to the unruly, but I'm going to park it for the moment, because okay. I think there's so much more in what you've what you're, you're dealing with, and maybe we won't get back to it, but I think it's the way that we always pull the story as to the unruly, and for a moment I'd like to I'd like to go back to your point, which of course would be where I'd be coming from too, which is that it starts in the cradle, and it finds different forms all throughout life, and that's what you're attempting, I think, to to display, show, explore for us in the book. And how about reading us a little bit, or does that feel not possible? Would, would, you, would, you, would you like me to read a tiny bit? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just to get a sense of it. I mean, you know, I, I should say that having said to my publishers that I would write a book about love, I then found it one of the most difficult things that I ever promised anyone that I would do. A bit like making good on one's um, engagements. <laughs> but, um, and, and I've tried to use various kinds of language because I think it's, it's a very varied emotion or indeed often a set of emotions. But I started with myself and I think I did that because it seemed to me that you have to situate where you're coming from. We're all experts in love in various ways, all of us, because we've all lived and we've all either experienced love in a way that you know, the novelist might say was full or the analyst might say was... was, was maturing or helpful, I mean, I don't know what, whatever language you're to use. Um, and we've also all felt this, our various sufferings through it. And if we haven't, then we've probably um, felt it by negation. We've cut ourselves off from it. It's something strange in our lives. Um, but the self is the only place you can begin. And so I began with the self. Uh, it doesn't go on with the self. And I, I'll just read you a little bit from the beginning uh, to give you some of the terms. Not the very beginning, but almost. I don't know exactly how old I was when I first became aware of love. Aware enough so that it stirred an emotion sufficiently significant to become memorable, even though its meanings were confusing. Aware of it as a word that stood in for a host of feelings. I was probably around seven, and the memory is linked to a French song. French was my first clearly spoken language, amidst all those others that floated through my parents' immigrant trajectory, which brought its own traditions of love in train. Like all immigrants, they felt alternately ambivalent about those traditions and idealized them, subliminally communicating them to us. In the way of most songs heard or learned by children, the lyrics were only half-grasped, but the refrain of this one stayed with me. I can't sing, so I'm not going to try and sing this to you, but, but you'll all recognize it when you hear it. Il y a longtemps que je t'aime, jamais je ne t'oublierai. A translation might read, I've loved you for a long time, I'll never forget you. Maybe what imprinted the song within me was the mysterious art of the refrain. 
It moved from a past of love through the present and abruptly into a future where, though love is lost, memory and longing are forever. Maybe it was also the collective embarrassment of raising our children's voices into what was palpably intimate, a region hovering on the forbidden. I clearly recall musing over what it might all mean. Loving, it seemed, stretched back into the mists of a time past and was so significant it continued forever, tumbling into a vague future of the imagination. The word love wove itself into my childhood in other equally or perhaps more perplexing ways. I grew up amidst several cultures. One was French and Catholic, adept in the language of the sins of the flesh, of confession, repentance, and salvation. Paradise as well, but we don't mention that here. The other was English and Protestant, versed in Puritanism and unspoken guilts. Both had been transplanted into the newish world of Quebec, a province of Canada, and also of its influential neighbor to the south, the United States of film, television, and pop music. My parents were immigrants of Jewish lineage from Central Europe, which added a potent ingredient of world weariness and of humorous pessimism to the cultural brew. My brother was seven years older than me. He had a habit of assuming a severe paternal role. Often enough, it came with shouts, raised hands, and disciplinary threats from which I would flee to cower in the bathroom behind the only locked door in the house and there await my working parents' return. But he loves you, my mother would say, when I wept my version of events to her. He really does love you. So love was also being locked in a lavatory, one's will brutally impeded by what felt very like a version of hate. Love brought a series of power relations in its train. I won't go on, I'll just read you one more paragraph. I go on a little bit more about childhood experiences. Um, and then I, I say, if I anatomize all this as preamble, it is because love always carries an individual story, whatever its universal weight as an emotion or condition, and whatever discourses of love our culture has conferred on us. The childhood instances I post here were unique to me and inflected the way in which I grew into an understanding of love. What is common to all children, however, is that the little four-letter word accrues so many contradictory meanings that it emerges as a consummate mystery, one trailing importance, yet hardly easier, easy to decipher or live. Well before I'd actually been to bed with a man or used the word about my emotions, well before I'd experienced that obsessive madness of passion that links the lover to the lunatic and the poet, I already carried within myself a host of oft-conflicting templates of love, habits of mind and body, wishes, expectations, fears, let alone those fluttering ghosts of those of my sibling and parents, all born out of a brew of family life, culture, and bodily forces. These were rekindled, tugged at, and pulled into varying shapes whenever I later fell in love, or simply loved. And each new accretion came into play the next time. Round. And those that last those last two paragraphs are really, you know, what psychoanalysis tells us about love. And I think that's what psychoanalysis told me. But um, <laughs> there's much more than that. Well, I think what's what everybody will relate to in that is the conflict, the ambivalence, the tug, the passion of disappointment and of longing and 
the passion of hurt and being told that this is like the whole brew constituting the thing that has allowed everything to happen inside of it. Absolutely. Also, I mean, I think what for me, since we titled this, uh, what does psychoanalysis tell us? What, one of the things that psychoanalysis or the reading of Freud and others uh, taught me was that you can think through cases and something, it's a, it's a word, it's an it's a, you know, expression that my sometime writing partner, John Forrester, coined, um, thinking not in universals, not in abstractions, but thinking through cases, thinking through the individual instance of things. Um, and of course, that's going to create complexity and complications, as well as perhaps some underlying patterns. But Susie, you should tell us about No, but I think what's interesting is, is that the, the word love, that with your brother beating you up and locking you in the toilet, is really the precursor for things that happen in adult relationships, mm -hmm. that if they were not love relationships, would not be tolerated. And that particular conundrum is what I see in the consulting room because what I see, of course, is the longing but also the inability to trust the fact that there is to take in that love that is being offered because it is all hedged in by the kind of thing you've just talked about. It's always shadowed by hate and power and not always but often. And, and, you know, to say it like that, it makes it too abstract. Actually, I want to hear the story of your last patient. <laughs> because, because that, you know, that will tell us more in the way that the book actually tries to tell you more, not by, by these. But you see, of course, the thing about working as a psychoanalyst is that you do some, one does something very different, which is that you are in a relationship, in the room, and aspects of that relationship in modern psychoanalysis, are taken as the site for trying to understand the difficulty in relationship. And since we tend to think that in current relationships you see your history and your parental histories or the histories of your upbringing and your culture and your gender and everything, and that it is also, um, that that then gets enacted in the therapy relationship. So the therapy relationship is actually a site of potential love and a potential cure of love. Now, you know, Freud has moved, we've moved a long way from when Freud says, do not be flattered by the fact, young psychoanalyst, that your patient has fallen in love with you. This is a sickness. You must not take it seriously. You must understand that this is part of what will happen. And by receiving it, but not accepting it, you will, we will get to what the issue is. Now, this, this modern psychoanalysis is a bit different. And he says, of course, you must not be flattered by this, and you must not be affected by it. And the whole notion of the word transference came up because of Anna O's falling in love with Breuer and her imagined um, pregnancy, her pseudosciasis. So we have a very different take today, in, in, which is why I'm well, not talking. Some of you have a different take. Well, most, I think most throughout the world have a view that the therapist is bound to have very strong feelings in response to the person that they're working with. If they have a void of feeling, that in itself is extremely interesting and is telling you something 
about the internal world and how it gets played out in the in, for that person, which is then visited on the therapy relationship. So it's not really important that I talk about a case. What's more important is that it's the shapes of the things that are demanded in the room which tell me much more about the struggles of that individual person mm -hmm. to try to make it possible for them to live inside of themselves enough to love. Yes. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, but you know, I think Freud talked about the cure through love and, and, and he said that's what psychoanalysis was um, and the lover would always do it better. <laughs> because the lover was in the real, but the lover would also could also do it worse um, because it's in the real. I mean, you know, um, um, but but you, what you're talking about is actually analyzing what goes on in a room between two people, um, and because there is an atmosphere of intimacy within the consulting room, those feelings that are evoked are very often the feelings that have to do with the lacks or the goods or the vagaries of loving people, loving others. And you want to analyze how you feel in relationship with what the patient gives you, because that will tell you where the patient is. It's not about analyzing yourself, it's about analyzing the counter-transference, yes? Yes and no. Okay, both. I mean, I think, you know, one of the big secrets of modern therapy is you get to be thinking about yourself all of the time, because you're thinking about yourself in relation, because you don't feel the same thing from hour one to hour two. You feel very, very differently, because there's something about the uniqueness of that particular therapeutic couple and what the demand is and what 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 is requested of you. But let's go back because but do you think, way, so do you think I am sorry, I'm going to you can all ask questions at the end. But what I want to ask you is do you think therefore that the relationship within the analytical or therapeutic consulting room, the analytical chamber, um, can become far more passionate and better in some ways than all the relationships outside because of the sheer attentiveness that this absolutely I think it's person is giving you. I think what one of the difficulties are what is posed by the very therapeutic endeavor is that the the person the individual is being listened to. And actually we don't listen very well in the rest of the world. It's not so much a talking cure. It's a listening cure. It's a listening cure. And but I think it would be different. You see, I think if Freud had been French, it would have really been a talking cure. <laughs> but because he was a Viennese Jew, and, and the Jews are, are, you know, they listen to their God, see their God. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's okay. A, a, but, but, but I'm being comfortable. Okay, but I mean, the point, is, the point of it is, you, you're asking me, is there something precious about that 50 minutes, however many times a week or even once a month, that provides such a sense of, I am discovering what it is I need to say in order to be heard and, and have that received. Is, does that make other relationship problematic? And I think there is no doubt in my vast years of clinical experience that there is a phase of therapy where other relationships can feel wanting until the person is able to bring in what they need to say in those other places. And I think it's really about facilitating that transfer. Because I don't think the cure 
is the cure in the room. I think the cure is the cure in the life. Oh, there may be those. I wouldn't use that word. But so I think, I think there is a disjuncture. That disjuncture can be very, very productive, but it, it does need to be taken out because otherwise I do think there's something not right about it. But that's a technical question. I want you to talk about your book a bit more. And um, I mean, one of the things that comes from the clinic a lot that I've seen is that, and I've written about it, and you and I have discussed many times, is the different moments of erotic relationships and the difficulty of maintaining the erotic in long-term relationships. Yes, Susie wrote a very good book called The Impossibility of Sex, um, which is really about the difficulty, one, one part of it is about the difficulty of the long-term um, erotic. But in the, in the life story of love, from your perspective, what would you like to say? What would I like to say? Um, God. Well, okay. <laughs> like that, I have nothing to say. Um, yes, I mean, I, th I think one of the things that I you know, describe, and I describe it through literature and, and through interviews and um, cultural factors, is that, is that you know, there is, there is a sense in which, um, let me start from the negative. We live in a world where we have sex aplenty, or certainly we have the images and the, um, and the permission to have sex uh, in excess if we want it or if we can possibly manage it. And yet a lot of people are very unhappy about their sexual lives. Now, that may be because they're measuring up to an impossible ideal of what sex might bring them. Um, or it may simply be that sex is not uh, conducive to bringing those other things in its train, that it, that it is actually um, a, a, an expression of passion which can only be, as the poets have long told us, short-lived. It can go on in other forms, it can be very you know, good and we wouldn't want to do without it, but it, it, it's not going to be in perpetuity that state of excessive happiness. Um, and one of the things that I analyzed in the book was the way in which our very ideas of happiness are based on the drug culture in which we live. <laughs> so, so that the happiness we expect from sex is also a high. It's an ex explosive and radiant and, and transcendental high. Um, and uh, when we don't have sex, we are low. <laughs> we, are, we become depressed. Things are wrong. And all of those are continuous with street drugs and indeed pharmaceutical drugs. And it's a form of classification or understanding of happiness, which may actually not allow us to experience the, 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 um, the complexity, let's call it the complexity now, of what human relations of a sexual kind are about. Um, um, so, so I look at that. And I know, Susie, that in, in The Impossibility of Sex, you look at that too. Um, sex can be wonderful, but it's never as passionate when it goes on. And the philosophers have talked about this, as well as the poets and the psychoanalysts. Um, and it, it's very, very interesting as to why that is the case. Why can't we have yeah, I mean, that, passionate that, sex all the time? Susie. I don't even, well, I mean, I don't, I think sex in a long-term relationship acts as a, as a regulator, actually, and I don't, I don't think sex can't be great. And I think it can be great. But, I but don't, it's, it's never, it's not, not, it's not a foreign things. body that you're getting to know. It's not but, the forbidden. 
It's not an obstacle. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I was going to go... It's forbidden rather than forbidden. Um, and I think that characterizes it very differently and makes it a very different. I mean, so let, let's go back to adolescence. I think the reason that, that sex is so explosive in people's early lives is, for one thing, that adolescence is already an explosive time in terms of our, our, you know, our mental and emotional and hormonal, uh, physical makeup. Um, but also because in order to engage in sex, we have to break away with that, break away from the family. And there's already a kind of destructive element in it. There's an element of, of breaking through, of breaking, crossing the boundaries, um, which will only come again the next time we break away, which is usually to commit various forms of adultery. <laughs> so once again, there's the breaking through and away. And, and that, that violence that is always potentially contained in sexuality is something that makes it so extraordinarily passionate in its first encounters and then in other marginally forbidden encounters. What do you think of that? I think that's a very good argument. I think it's a good argument. What I'd like to put up against <coughs> it is the fact that an awful lot of young, very well-educated young women receive no sexual pleasure from their sexual encounters. I agree. So, that itself makes me wonder whether it's the transgression per se, or the, the breaking away, or is it the attachment or the idea of being loved, or the idea of making something with somebody else away from, rather than the sex, because it, it, the, the, they could be equally caught up, but have actually no sexual sexually pleasurable experiences. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think we need to put that somewhere. Do, would, you, would, you, would you agree that one of the, um, the difficulties, particularly for women, I think, is that the very permissiveness means, and the very fact that it can be very quick um, and, you know, uh, not attached to meaning in any way. I mean, it's just something that you do, something that you do like you do your push-ups in the morning. <laughs> it, it's not of any more significance. That is part of the health equation, not necessarily the romance equation. Well, I've never um, actually met any of those women. Right. Okay. I mean, oh, I have. Maybe they don't need to give. No, I don't. <laughs> I've got a daughter for God's sake, and, and she's got a lot of friends, and they all talk to me, or an awful lot of them talk to me. And I work with a lot of young women in other settings, so it's not quite the clinical population that I'm talking about. And I would see it as, of course, it has to do with the oversexualization and the de-eroticization of the culture at one level. At another level, I think, of course, it has to do with girls not having access to their bodies and only seeing their bodies from, their, from the outside, and therefore sex itself becomes a performance where they try to fall in love with the performance that they're involved but in. But do you think this is cultural, or do you think this is to do with women? My brother used to say to me, that horrible man who locked me into the lavatory, or made me lock myself into the lavatory, he says, women never experience anything until they've had children. After that, they loosen up and they're really good in bed. But that was, that was the ideology, wasn't it? I mean, that was the idea well, of... Do you think that may, there may be a grain of truth? No, I didn't. Yeah. I think we're just better to be brought up. Um, but 
but I, I know we have to go to everybody, but I want to ask you one thing, because it's happened to me with Impossibility, and it's happened to you with this book. We both attracted a large male readership. I think for the first time, is that, well, certainly for me, in Impossibility of Sex. Well, not for the first time, but to my surprise, okay. I thought love was very much um, a subject that women would, would you know, be comfortable about picking up and reading about and talking about. And in a lot of the festivals and, and public events that I've done around the book. Not here, of course. Not here, but, but in the countryside. <laughs> um, hey, or, you know, wherever. Um, a lot of men have not only come to the events, but have actually spoken and asked questions and have wanted to think about this and haven't seen it as a woman's subject. I mean, it wasn't, you know, um, Mars and Venus. It, it, was, it was very much uh, part of their lives, too. And um, that, to me, was very heartening and salutary. Okay, so what does that tell you? Because I think it's... It, were they coming because they felt that you'd made a place for them to talk? Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, it, you know, Aspects of this book are, are quite philosophical. Exactly. I'm not. It, it, it's both psychoanalytic um, in some ways, and and I, I try and think about you know what love means to the society as well, what it means in terms of marriage or, or long-term relationships, and what is this idea of home that we create through love? And I mean all those things, and why can't we value repetition? We obviously value it in terms of religion. We value the repetition of ritual. Why can't we value or, or make a value about repetition in relationships rather than the new and the exciting in relationships? So, so the book thinks about things like that, and 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 men have wanted to talk about these things too. I mean, you know, they're human beings, <laughs> as we all know. But you, <laughs> sorry, but we we don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, for me, I think it's been that, that, that I got a readership of men for the first time with, in, because of the confusion around ideas of intimacy, relationship, sexuality. Um, obviously, a lot of men are now actively involved in raising children, so that's changed their relationship to that love doesn't just come in one form, it comes in in a physical form in different ways than was previous. But there was also, there is something incomprehensible to men, if they're thinking, about the bizarre ways in which masculinity is drafted sexually in the way that, that, that femininity is. And they seem very interested to talk about that. But I guess we should invite just, everybody. Just, okay, just say on. one more thing. I mean, I mean it, it wasn't very fashionable during my whole feminist history. But it's quite clear to me when I go back to literature and the various descriptions that we have of, of love, including childbirth and, and caring for children, which of course I deal with in the book as well, um, and you know what that means, that, that men have often, and in, in very large part, written about these things and shaped the way we think about them. Not, not in a way that you necessarily immediately want to rebel and say, no, no, that's all nonsense, but, but in a way that actually um, enables you to both live and understand it. But okay, but it, would, but would you say that for, for in literature there's a heroics of love that is is very different historically. There's a heroics associated with masculinity and love that only in the aristocratic tradition. 
-hmm. I would say. Um, I mean, you know, the Don Juanism of love obviously is there. Um, quite often expressed um, in the sense that men think women need to be wooed and overcome. And a lot of that wooing is not sexual in the first instance, it's verbal. <laughs> These are poets, after all, and writers. And, and, but I also think that women actually have a very special relationship to being wooed by language, to the, the play of language, before the play of bodies. I mean, language plays on the body. We all know this. We know it happens with children. Language plays on the body and, and, and shapes who you are. Um, and, and I think women, um, even through those days of adolescence when, when languages are strange, they are wooed by language. They've now done, apparently done, all those experiments that I don't like to talk about. They've done neuro experiments about this, and it's quite interesting. Um, sorry. Okay, now I was going to say, we've got half an hour or so. Would people like to come in on this conversation and ask Lisa things? If not, That's we'll just thing. keep talking. <laughs> if you would, stick your hand up, please. And have we talked about what you hope we talk about? And if not, please ask us to talk about other things. This is a vast subject. Okay. Your book is mentioned about platonic love. It's mentioned? Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Can you tell us something about you mean, what, well, I, I prefer not to call it platonic because I think that's probably a misnomer um, if we think about Plato, actually. What, what you really mean is MEGM lawyers, a loving friendship. And yes, I do talk about loving friendships because I think they're incredibly important. And again, historically, um, as well as in you know, television sitcoms, <laughs> friends have been very, very important and, and for many people have been the, the most um, desirable form of loving that there is. And certainly in my own life, and Susie can talk about it, she's written a wonderful book on female friends. Um, but it's not only female friends. Historically, it was, it was male friendships that were also extremely important because it was only through a friend who you had chosen who wasn't yet kin, who wasn't a member of your family or of your group, who was both a stranger and became intimate, that you could begin to debate what life was about and to be um, contradicted and made to think afresh in this atmosphere of trust. So, so male friendships are incredibly important as well as friendships between women. But Susie, do you want to come in on that? Well, I think of it generationally. I mean, of course, there was always the insult of women's friendships, of the kind of coffee clutch, right? And, and women just sort of helping each other. And it, that was a put down. But when the feminist movement happened, I, th I think we suddenly began to say, wait, these are really exciting, wonderful friendships that, that are both a mirror but also a challenge to everything that I, that I am, you are, all of that. And we, I think in the, in the beginning, in the early 70s, women began to dare to take their friendships as absolutely central to their lives. So that... They wouldn't drop a, a girlfriend if a boyfriend called or whatever. Now that that was really a difficult thing to do then. Now what I really noticed is that in my daughter's generation, they don't even date the boys that they're dating. I mean, they might see them after they've seen the girlfriends, or they, it's they, that is such a solid basis now for friend that friendship is the thing that they know they're going to live their lives 
reflecting and caring and are going to have resilience. And so I think friendship is in a very different position for a lot of women cross-class. I, I don't think this is just educated women or just women who are exposed to feminism. I think all of the popular culture around girlfriends is very interesting. And I still think girls have an easier time risking certain kinds of emotional conversations than the vast majority of, of, of young men do, although they do bond and clearly have relationships that date from childhood. Um, those are deep relationships of love. I, I don't know how else one would imagine talking about them, except as the people I'd want to have by my bedside when I'm dying. And hopefully, they'll still be around before I'm... Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, the last chapter of the book is about friends. I, I, I want to ask Susie something, if I may, before we have the next question. May I, Susie? We wanted to ask you along, and we didn't get, I didn't get a chance. Why do you think love goes wrong with all people's good intentions? Well, in simple terms, I think we think of love as being in one box and all the difficult things being in another, whereas they're, 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 they're woven to our early relationship, if you want to think of it that way, which is how I might think about it, is, is woven of both the absolute passion of the parents, or the, let's say the parents, then also the frustration, difficulty, inadequacy of the individuals who are raising you. So that right in that experience of your introduction to life and to relationship is both, this is, mm, but it's also, wait a minute, somebody's prodding me and pushing me and changing me and doing this and putting me to bed and they could make it better. Before we have mental apparatus that pauses that stuff, both the longing and the attachment and the dependency are also happening along with the thwarting and the not seeing. And I, I think that's what gets re-stimulated when we get very, very close. It doesn't get so stimulated in friendships because the physical boundary is not quite the same. It's not broken in the same way. It can be. I mean, girlfriends can feel terribly abandoned by each other. But there's not a permission to rage about it. And so when I they're 11. What? When they're 11. Yeah, but I, exactly. But I think that what happens when you're in a relationship is that you're, you both want to make that relationship into bliss. And yet both parties, or three parties, however you have the relationship, have inside of love those very impediments that make it so problematic. Yes. And I suppose the healthy relationship is the one that knows that, sees it, doesn't try to transform the other, and tries to accept, help the other accept that they are loved and that they don't have to fight all the time to make sure that they're loved. Thank you. There's somebody there. Yeah. Just stand up. Um, <laughs> I just want to ask you a question about your own parents. Could you tell me what you think the differences are between the way your father loved you when you were young and your mother loved you? Because I'm interested in this the male and the female parents and how the differences show themselves. Well, I don't, I don't really know how they loved me. I know how I felt it. And of course, I've been a typical very good little eatable girl, felt my father loved me a lot more. <laughs> um, even though 
my mother spent a great deal more time talking to me. My father was rather silent. Um, but there was a sense that the father's, um, if you like, blessing or acceptance or attention, attentiveness, which was much harder to get, was because of that perhaps far more valuable. And, um, and my mother, who, who was you know, quite open in her approval and disapproval, um, was of course, sorry, I can't see you anymore, was of course, no, um, of course more matter of fact in her instant influence on me. But of course, then you go on through life and you begin to see other things. As a child, that's how I think I experienced it. I experienced my mother as being critical and my father as deeply approving, even though he might never have said anything. Um, and as, as I grew up and had my own children, I began to reevaluate all of that because, of course, you begin to see it happening differently and, and you reread what you internalized um, and you know, take it further. But you know, I wrote a memoir um, about my parents, and I think some of that went in there. But I, th I think what's interesting about that account is that for so many people, because particularly of our generation, because so many mothers had anxiety and agitation in relation to reproduction and looking after the children, that actually that still lack of the father, which might have even been quite full of neglect, in that he wasn't that engaged, but he was sort of there, and you could sit there, gives a very different sense than the person who's got anxiety about, are you eating enough, you're not eating enough, you're this, you're that, you're this, you're that, da, 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 da. And even in my own raising of children, I noticed that if you raise with a partner who's equally involved, they get what would have been historically considered women's agitation because they're like, oh my God, is the baby eating enough or isn't it? Whereas the conventional father is the baby's eating, it's fine, just, you know. Yeah. So I, I, I think you're, it, we're talking about time frame. Where I think it's partly that, although my parents, because they came from a, a different country, a different place, were, were, were much, they were like two generations before rather than one generation in many respects, so um, it's not quite like the family you describe. Um, but I, I think even though what you say is absolutely true um, about mothers and their daughters' bodies and the different relationship to their sons' bodies, which is very different, I don't think it has changed all that significantly from what it was before. I suspect that my mother, um, when she talked about her parents, had exactly the same internalized relationship to her father, who was, you know, approving and um, and simultaneously distant and somehow wise. And her father was probably wise, whereas my father was just, you know, approving. I don't think he was particularly wise in retrospect. Um, and and more anxious relationship to her mother. And I think that's to do with similarity and difference. I, I really think there is. I mean, I think uh, even when I watch myself with my own daughter, I'm more likely to comment about uh, her body than I am to comment about my son's body. I mean, I will say, oh, you look nice today, darling. Or, uh, oh, you know, um, don't you want to put a little more blusher on? I mean, I'll, you know, I'll say ridiculous, and I'll catch myself, because she's quite old, I shouldn't be saying things like this at all, but I'll catch myself doing, I never dream of saying to my son, you need a little more blusher today. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Susie? 
you think it's very different that we've actually, it's since women have got fractured? I think it's very, very different. And of course, I've tr I, I treated my children completely unconsciously on gender lines, even though I was desperate not to do so. Um, but I, no, I don't, and I don't, I don't also see with the whole yummy mummy issue, I think there's all sorts of new issues going on around bodies and stuff, but that's... that's I, think, I, think that, I think you're right, but you know, I think there are two things going on here. One is the cultural argument and a kind of social critique, where I completely agree with you. The other one is actually the, the you know, the, the nitty-gritty of everyday life in families, which are, can be quite different from one of that. I mean, they're both. Well, I mean, to me, see, what interests me is the way that the nitty-gritty is an expression of and how it makes the matrix up. Because, you know, there's nothing that I can see in the nitty-gritty that isn't about the complexity of those really, of those. So, I, I mean, you're right. I, I mean, I just can't, in, you know, don't do this you know, your father or whatever, which would have been the thing said before. But, it, you know, it's a complete madness because the father was not the authoritarian figure. The, the mother was always the one who was disciplining. So there was all these weird things that went But on. in the name of the father. In, in the name of the father, but not in the action of the father, because the, the, the well, father right. was the actually... The name was still there. And yeah. The name was still there. And it still is, in many respects. I mean, I remember my father coming home and, and telling me to take the tweezers off my eyebrows because he'd been told that I'd been tweezing my eyebrows and it was very wrong, right? With having no concept of what tweezing eyebrows was, so I had to take them off. Your father was a moral force. <laughs> um, hi, Lisa, congratulations on your book. Um, I just wanted to... Uh, I made these comments about Freud and about Eros that I just really wanted to, to open up to both of you. Of course, Freud named the unruly emotion Eros, and he experienced this emotion himself, you know, in a very passionate courtship of, of Martha Bernay. And uh, he borrowed the term Eros, of course, from, from the god Eros, who is, is so beautifully um, represented in his, in his art collection. And I think he understood Eros quite well, but I think one of the sort of really his dynamic ideas about Eros was to, to see Eros as a stage. You know, you experience this and then Eros moves you into, you know, he didn't see Eros so much as, as a kind of disruptive and fragmentary force forever. This was a moment, you know, you experienced the passion and then you moved into something very stable. So he then saw Eros as the stabiliser. I don't agree with you on that interpretation. What, sorry? I don't agree with that interpretation. Okay. I think a lot of post-Freudian analysts in, in the American um, 50s, maybe even 60s, but these would are actually Freud's that. words. I don't think Freud would. I thought Freud yes, thought was continuously... Sorry, I have to disagree with you. Yes, he did say that. Continuously disruptive. Um, no, 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 no. He didn't say it was continuously disruptive. It could be, but Eros he saw as... A, state, a force that could lead you into into marriage, into community. It was a civilizing force. So it wasn't always a bolt from the blue. It was something that would take you forward. And I think that was part of his relationship with mother. That's how we saw it working. I mean, he was, you know, a very conservative man. You know, if he stopped his own daughters having the kind of education that could take them onto university. 
So his, his ideas about where women went in society were quite conservative. But I was really just throwing that open to, to hear your comments and to see whether you think his ideas about Eros are still relevant to, to today and to psychoanalysis today. I, I think you should answer because I think that account is Freud as, and I think it is an accurate part of Freud, I, I don't think it isn't accurate, but I think it is Freud as a just-so story, or psychoanalysis as a just-so story, as so, and, psycho, and passion as the socialising force that means you go into reproduction and you become a respectable person and you tame passions. I think that is only one aspect of what the Freudian story is. I and so I don't disagree that it's there. It's not the story that ever interested me as a clinician. As, as a piece of social theory, I think it's, it's plausible. It's a way of, it's, but it's awfully just so for me. Yeah. And it's not the Freud that I use um, in the book. It's not my Freud. Mm -hmm. It's not even the Freud and Freud's women. I mean, I, I, I do, you know, Freud obviously had, was a Victorian and, and he had his, his own uh, <coughs> semi-conservative biography. But I think Freud's ideas was, was not at all like that. And that's why we still read him and still think about him and still find things that are interesting in him. Um, I think the Freud that I read um, is much more textured than that and, and continues to see the pleasure principle of Eros as, as a, a continuously both force that both moves you forward and disrupts stability. Um, and the stability which can also be part of the opposite principle, the so-called death principle, the death drive, um, which, which, which would keep you fixed and repeated, I mean, to put it very, very simply. So, so I don't, I, don't um, I think Freud is more interesting than that. And I think he's more interested in that as a writer, whatever principles were then taken out of him and applied to various kinds. And there are many, many, many different kinds of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy that draw on this. Um, but thank you for that. And I look forward to your book. <laughs> <laughs> I just wondered if the word eros is still used in psychoanalysis. Is that, is that you know, like relevant or a, a, a loaded sort of a... I don't, I don't know. I go to, I mean, Lisa's right, there are many different forms of psychoanalysis, but I go to an awful lot of conferences and I would say it's not really used in clinical work. It may very well be, there may be some branch of clinical work that uses it. Um, I think people use words like libidinous, they might still use phallic, they might still use edipal, they often use pre-edipal. Um, I think it's, it's, there's a whole psychoanalysis that's gone into literary theory that really has kind of not very much to do with psychoanalysis. It's, um, you know, because it's become its own thing and into anthropology. So I, and then there's what we, we do on the coal face, which is a very different practice, I think. Please. Um, do I stand up? No, only if you, if you... I think you address Lisa, the people in the back. I think Lisa will repeat it otherwise. Um, I'm very interested in what you said, both of you, about the status of women and the, the way in which women now can bond and have intense relationships. As if, and I think it's right, that wasn't always the case. If it wasn't always the case, it's interesting interesting to ask why. And I think that, I think, in approximate date is the 60s or 70s, 
when women were suddenly, it seems to me, able to have intense relationships. If that's the case, then, as I said, and we have to ask why, and it seems to me that the reason why women didn't do this was because they were always put down as fishwives, as inferior, inadequate beings by men. So that a group of women talking with any kind of intensity, and of course it must have happened always, um, was seen in a completely different way. And this must have something to do with emancipation of women. Absolutely. I think, I think the thing, if you come from analysis and feminism, that you're trying to understand is the internalized misogyny that exists inside of women. Right? That's that so that the risks to take seriously mm. to hear one another mm. to, to and to take seriously those relationships and prioritize them and value them was was a very big thing because it actually meant you were transforming something about stuff that lived inside well, of you. What I wanted to say also was that um, this must have been so threatening for men. I think it was threatening for men, but I think it was th equally threatening for women. And I do come from there, because I wrote The Riddle of Freud, which talks about Freud's views of women, and how, in some way, his Jewishness allowed him to see women in the way he did, mm -hmm. especially sexually, uh, which was a bit put down. <laughs> Um, women's friendships. Well, I agree with you and disagree with you both because I think you know one could make the argument the other way that women's friendships, if you look at the literature, for example, have been there for a very, very long time and were often extremely important. But I think social forms were such um, that people a had larger families and were closer to their families, so sisters were very important each other as well. And that, that's not quite friends, but, but it can have been friendship. Um, and um, then what, when, you, when you move into periods where, where like the early 20th century, when many people are living in cities and away from families, that the whole notion of friendship begins to take on a different impetus um, because you're distant from your families. And um, men have always, in a sense, once women are married, have slightly feared female friendships because because they take women away from their duties or, or because they have another area of intimacy. But but I do think they've always feared them. I think sometimes they've also wanted them because they actually allowed them to have greater freedom. So in Balzac, um, for example, it's quite clear that the men are keen for the women to have certain kinds of friendships, and the women are less keen to have them <laughs> because they want to stay with their lovers, but the lovers say, and, and do that. So it, it's not a value or a disvalue, it's just different social forms mm -hmm. take precedence. And I think one story is probably not enough to cover all the kinds of, mm -hmm. of kinships and, and friendships that, that have, have existed and continue to exist. I mean, some very, very close, some very intimate, some, some you know, different, more like, clubbing together for political reasons, which is another form of friendship as well. well I wasn't saying that it didn't happen. In fact, it always happened. I was really looking at how it was perceived by me. Um, well, I, yes, I, again, I would, I would 
you know, I love disagree, but I, I would say both are true. I mean, I think they could both be put down, but not always and systematically put down. Um, insofar as women were, you know, it's never, then obviously women's friendships are going to be never too, but, but it's not. It, I do agree with, with you when you said that something did change around the 60s or 70s. And I In think, and I think it's, I think so your point, and your your point. Well, I mean, it, it depends where you're looking, but your your point about women's suffrage, mm -hmm. it arises. The demands for women's suffrage arises at exactly the same moment as psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. So that's a very interesting mm -hmm. conjunction. And then after the Second World War, particularly in North America and in Britain, you get. Uh, the reinstitution of women inside the home, don't you? Give us back our wives and sweethearts, and the development of the suburbs and the states, and the whole notion of the isolation of individual women after they've been active in the in the war effort. So there's a whole different thing. That Rosie, the woman, had that to come home. She had to come home, and so it takes another generation, which 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 then in I think that's absolutely right. Which then is us or my generation who picks up on there is something that's been lost, something that's been lost, we don't even have those words, right? Something that we're wanting that creates a whole different notion of friendship. But what I love about your book about female friends is, is the fact that you, in this moment of women's liberation um, and increasing friendships amongst women, you then find within those friendships all the power relations that, that they've grown up with um, in, in, you know, men and women uh, world. Yeah, I mean, I think we can be too rosy about it, and I think what Louise and I were writing, and Louise, of course, was my best friend, were writing about was the hurts, the longings, the competition, the envy, the anger, as well as the absolute adoration, need, and attachment, and, what, and how, in a way, again, that comes from exactly the same root, the, the partly more intensely the mother-daughter relationship, but also how the culture has entered that inside of each individual woman. I think we've got time for one more. Yeah. There's a couple of hands, I think. All right, you can see them. Yeah, you probably have to shout because you're in the second room. I'm sorry. Yes, if you could talk a little bit about the enemies of love, most simply about betrayal. Truth. Yes, the enemies of love, betrayal. Ah, <coughs> yes, and jealousy, <laughs> and triangles. Um, what, what was the question specifically? Could you please speak more about oh. betrayal, the enemies oh. of love? Was that the question? There's a lot of it. The enemies of love and betrayal. There's an awful lot of it. and. Um, I think people are driven to it because people grow up on the home in threes or fours and they find that couples can be very uncomfortable places. So that something happens which actually, uh, whether it's felt as a betrayal or whether it was an actual betrayal, um, there is a severing or a parting or a tension or a deliberate creation of tension so that the, that twosome which can get too cloying and too undifferentiated has to come apart for a while. Susie writes about this very well in one of her cases as well. Um, you're very good on, on the, 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 the way people come together and become too similar, yeah. too merged, and, and then need the third, whether it's an analyst or a lover, 
uh, to come in and, and, and somehow rupture it and reintroduce the difference. I suppose for me, the, the thing, I don't know if this is a way of talking about it slightly differently, is can the couple use the fact of merger, which, in, which happens, to heal the pieces that haven't allowed them to feel sufficiently loved, so that they actually can then differentiate and stay in a separated attachment to each other rather than an emerged attachment. And that would be the accomplishment, if you like, if one is thinking sort of in mental hygiene terms of what, what is the struggle of the couple? You know, what, how can the couple have intimacy and, and separateness that's in a form of connection without having to go to betrayal and, and the damage and cruelty of betrayal. And I suppose if we go back to Eros in the way that you were describing it, along the line somewhere you're supposed to get to this very advanced position of being able to be to be love, to love and see the other as an other and as well as being together. But I think one of the difficulties that I see from my job is often we don't, we have all of the longings but we may not have the muscles to receive the love that we A, are very good at giving and B, comes towards us but we don't quite know how to digest and assimilate and betrayal becomes, or rejection becomes a way of sending the other away and that might mean it into the arms of another. I think. I mean, just, just to move out of the, the, the kind of the area of intimacy, if you like, I think one of the other things that has happened to us culturally is that we have um, almost a kind of a, 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 an inflated, if I can say that, idea of um, togetherness. <laughs> and um, how much togetherness, I would ask, can people bear? I mean, how, how you know, and then when, they, when there's any kind of what is experienced as betrayal of that, um, there's a sense of such deep abandonment and, and such uh, dismantling of the self that one actually can't bear it. Whereas in fact, I'd like to have a rather stoical and, and tough idea of people. I think that people are very vulnerable. We're all deeply vulnerable and we can suffer. That's what we're partly constituted to do. We cry as children. We know about suffering. Pain is in the air. Um, <laughs> pain is in the air all the time. Um, but I think we're actually tougher than we sometimes in, in, in our world give ourselves credit for. And I think we can bear certain amounts, certain quantities of um, what you might want to call betrayal, which could be coldness or um, interest in another, and, and still sort of somehow, you know, not take the couple away and destroy you like the family, if there is a family there. I mean, I think there's a way of rethinking what we mean by these things. But I think that's where sex comes in as a regulator, because I think that is where <coughs> to keep the separation or to create the separation, maybe one can't go to sex all the time because you actually need to make some boundaries. Mm -hmm. Should we take that last? That's the impossibility of sex. sex yes. <laughs> Should we take the last question? Yeah. But stand up. Yes, stand up so we can read your lips. I just wanted to ask about um, when the love object, the other, is either virtual 
or um, view through a virtual lens and I'm just wondering in today's world, the virtual world, what happens to the emotion of love does it become more or less unmoving? Well, I have, I have many, uh, I, they're not actually answers, I have many ways of thinking about this and I do some of this in the book. I mean, one of my ways of thinking about this is that love is always in part virtual. I mean, so much of the people that we are um, constituted by fantasy and imagination and reading and going to the theater and going to the movies and all those are virtual, if you like, relationships. I mean, they're, they're virtual ways of thinking about others and ourselves. Um, and they feed who we are and who we want to be and, and how we live. Um, so th that, that's the kind of, you know, the, the wider view. In the narrower sense, I do think there is something deeply addictive about uses of um, the internet. And I say that because I myself <laughs> find it deeply addictive. I mean, you know. Top tweeter, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I sit at my computer a lot. I'm a writer, and, and, and so you want to do other things with it. I don't go to porn sites because that's not how I get my kicks or my pleasure. <laughs> um, some people do, and do an awful lot of it. And I, I think the dangers of that are mm -hmm. that the, the the fact that you can no longer distinguish where your satisfactions lie, and you begin to think that those passive relationships are pornography because they are passive, the other is passive, and you, in a sense, are also passive. There is no change within pornography as there might be within the real. And I think I think that is uh, potentially dangerous. Susie. What was the question? About the virtual. What, what, aspect, virtual. what aspect of it? Does it make it more unruly, the virtual world? Does it make love more unruly? I think Lisa's right. I mean, we're all, all already in fantasy relationships, but I think the fact that you may not have an encounter, so that it is in fact it's tantalizing. You're being continually tantalized. Um, I don't know if I'd use the word unruly. I think it's a kind of stimulates a piece of your of your of your desire and longing that where and that's what needs to be repeated or can can need to be repeated. I I, I had um, the experience of working with somebody who started to play computer games and then chat on the side and many, many virtual, I mean real relationships but conducted through cyberspace in which what was brought to those relationships as life solutions had very little to do with either of the circumstances that any of, any of the different ones that she she went through or he went through would have been possible. So they were imaginative possibilities and they allowed the person to feel and introduce themselves to themselves in a different way while they were introducing themselves to the other, which is what you do in love. But they were very, um, and they, they was terribly, you know, they, there was so much passion and upset in them when they didn't go right, which they didn't do because the relationships needed to be not actually in the life that was lived on a daily basis. 
no, but that's you know I don't know what it is. What was it? You know, what do you have to say? About I think it? I think it's a cultural. You know, if, if I wear my, with my wearing my cultural commentator hat, I think one of the things that I find worrying about um, relationships online and quite often uh, pornography that's attached to some of them is that they, they, they move into areas of excess very quickly. <laughs> um, so the the you know porn sites have grown more violent um, during the life of the uh, web. Um, they haven't grown sort of more docile and more loving. <laughs> They've grown increasingly excessive, um, and so I worry. That's one of my worries about um, the internet and the virtual, in that it's very easy to have pain or to hurt within it, and and that seems to um, I don't know, grow. But what, what about the sort of general intoxicating? I think what happens now, which wouldn't happen before, is this is not about you write to some professor whose work you like in Indiana or Australia and you get a reply and you have an interaction back and forth quickly, then it's gone. But in that moment, or artist, it doesn't really matter, I, there is something about that, the speed of that reply and your reply to that reply and that that I think is a completely new phenomenon. Okay, maybe I it wasn't a, a new phenomenon. I don't I think maybe it wasn't a new phenomenon when you had five posts a day, but that was only within England, wasn't it? Now we reach out across the world and we feel known and seen for those few interactions. And we feel we're able to express to some complete stranger whose words perhaps we've liked or their film. And we've we've entered into a new We've got bigger in some way, and yet have we? I don't well, know. I don't know. I th what you describe is interesting because it's a whole area of flirtation, which I actually rather like. I mean, that's a stimulus. It's an interesting stimulus. It's not a, a, a you know, a, it's not looking for satisfaction, an instant satisfaction. So I, th I think it's slightly different. Anyhow, we probably we could go on forever, but we should stop. <laughs> thank you, Lisa. Um, thank you, Susan. Pleasure. And, and thank you, all of you.